Welcome to episode 163 of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast. This show was recorded on Tuesday 11th of July 2017. However, it includes audio recorded at the Velo City Cycle Advocacy Conference in June. I'm Carlton Reed, and I'm the executive editor of BikeBiz.com. Before we get into the episode, here's David to introduce our show sponsor. The Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast is brought to you by Jensen USA, where you'll always find a great selection of products at amazing prices with unparalleled customer service. For more information, just go to jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. And now for a limited time, new customers to Jensen USA who are referred by the spokesman get 10% off one item. Simply enter the spokesman, no spaces, at checkout. Hey everybody, it's David from the Fredcast Cycling Podcast at thefredcast.com. I'm the host and producer of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast. For show notes, links, and other information, simply go to our website at the-spokesman.com. And now, here are the spokesmen. Thanks, David. But this isn't a normal spokesman show. This is a Velo City special. I did a similar show from Velo City when it was held in Nantes, France, in 2015. And if you want to dig out that show, it's episode 119. Velo City is held every year, and it's staged in Europe every other year. Next year, it'll be staged in Rio de Janeiro and in Dublin in 2019. Now, it's no disrespect to those two cities, but staging a cycle advocacy conference in the Netherlands is always going to be quite special. The conference was staged over the best part of a week, with 260 speakers from around the world. I was one of them. And there were almost 1,500 delegates. I'd better just say here that it was sometimes impossible to find quiet spots for recording the audio, so in some of the interviews, you'll also hear the background chattering from some of those 1,500 delegates. The conference was held jointly between the cities of Arnhem and Nijmegen, and was opened by the King of the Netherlands, who, of course, rides a bike. One of the conference highlights for me was being able to ride the 25 kilometres between these two cities on a Euro-style bicycle superhighway, a wide, fast cycleway with purpose-built bridges and kept well away from the adjoining busy roads. On one of these rides, I hooked up with Thierry Jimenez of the Fietsersbond, or Cyclist Union, of Belgium. He was riding a gadget-festooned bike, and he showed me what all of the gizmos did. Believe me, every bicycle advocacy organisation around the world needs one of these bikes. More about that later. In this show, you'll hear from Fiona Campbell of Sydney, Australia, Dutch cycling professor Marco T. Brommelstreet, and Randy Newfeld of America's SRAM Cycling Fund. On a Velo City side trip, I went on an infrastructure safari of Amsterdam with Cornelia Dinker, and the University of Amsterdam's Meredith Glazer explained a little about what makes cycling in that city so spectacular. Later in the episode, I'll play a snippet from Queen's famous and usually quite clichéd bicycle song, but 
like you've never heard it before. However, I'm going to start with a Bicycle Bell-based Colorado Come Dublin advocacy program by Connor Cahill. It's a smart uh, Bluetooth bicycle bell. It's a regular bicycle bell that makes a ding-dong sound, and, but when you also when you press it, when you ring it, it also creates a record in the database of where and when you uh, logged that issue. And it has a unique identifier as well, and that allows the system to send you back a message to ask you to categorize and describe each record that you created, whether it was positive or negative. And we thought it was important for a number of reasons to be able to collect positive and negative issues. It's pretty obvious that there's always going to be positive and there's always going to be other issues that people are going to be reporting that are very important to identify and to remedy. But it's also important for the, the participants and volunteers themselves that when they're looking back through their list of all of the records that they've created, that it isn't all just doom and gloom, that there is actually some nice experiences that then might have logged, whether it was a recent change, whether it was putting in new Sheffield bike stands or whether it was fixing a pothole, or it was just a really nice sunset on that evening or you, you were just saying hello to a friend. It's really important to collect those positives. And that's also important then for the researchers within the municipality or the council to see where people are actually happy with what's happening or where they are seeing positive so that it, re it encourages them to do more improvements or just make sure that they don't impact on anything that is actually working already. And so where is this being trialled out? So it started off with a competition that was run in Dublin between Smart Dublin and Enterprise Ireland and uh, they got a fund to encourage, uh, to, to find a low-cost data-driven solution to get more people cycling. So we were running, so we ran a phase one trial just as a proof of concept before Christmas and now we've uh, succeeded in getting funding and cooperation from the council to do a much larger phase two trial then this summer in Dublin. And in the meantime, when I was, uh, I was talked to lots of people. I contacted lots of people just to get their feedback on it because I'm coming from an industrial design, software design point of view and while I'm involved in cycling advocacy for the last eight years, you know, there was a lot, it was entering into areas that I wasn't as uh, proficient on. So I enjoyed talking to a lot of different people from different areas. And one of those people was Fanula Quinn, who's based in uh, Fairfax in Virginia and who's a cycling advocate that comes back to Dublin. Um, and she told me about this competition in Colorado and uh, she su suggested we look at entering it. And um, we did. And and we succeeded in that and we nominated the city of Boulder to run a trial in as well in Colorado. And so we're just recently back from a trip, trip over there to talk with the transport people over there to see how the research that we'll be collecting fits in with their other qualitative and quantitative research that they're also running. Because Davis, California always used to be bike town, bike yeah. city yeah. USA, yeah. but it's been pretty much been overtaken by Boulder. So Boulder is a big bike town. So you're going to be collecting yeah, an awful yeah, lot of data yeah, from, yeah, from yeah, Boulder. Yeah, yeah. So um, it was, um, it was, it was, it was quite eye-opening to arrive over in Boulder because when you're in the city centre, it's really obvious that they put a lot of effort in into making it a much more pleasant place to cycle in. And I was, I was joking with the the, the planning people there, and we thought, oh, people have no reason to ring a bell other than just to say hello to their friends. That it's all pointless. And they said, don't worry, you'll see. There's always issues. And when I went out cycling around the outskirts, you know, there there definitely was issues that would be worth logging. And you know, if they're they're really motivated to actually double the modal share of people who cycle in uh, Boulder and they're really ambitious for um, their ranking in uh, the, the Bike League of America they have a, a, a bicycle friendly community League of American Bicycles yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, so um, they, they really want to kind of achieve the next level with that so we hope that the data we provide will help them do that and so if you're in Boulder you can see 
what you're doing with your your uh, smart bell and if you're in Dublin you can what about elsewhere in the world is there anything coming up where people can go oh, well I can nominate my city to get that well um, well if they go onto the website libertybell.io they can um, get their um, their local uh, transport officials or their regional or national transport officials to um, have a look at um, getting us to come over and to, to do um, uh, to run a trial of the Liberty Bell in their city or their area and uh, we'd be really delighted to do that. And what about the demographics? So different people are going to have different positives and different negatives. So if it's a, you know, granny, yeah. she's not going to like some things, and like, and if it's a young kid, they're going to like some things and not others. So how do you split that? Um, it's it's actually it's great that you brought that up. Um, we collect some very general demographic data on each of the participants, like their age range within 15 years and their gender and the type of bicycle that they cycle and roughly where in the city that they think that they'll be mainly cycling in or through. And um, it's really important to us based on kind of the background in design thinking and user experience design and industrial design to make sure that there's a really good spread of, um, of people who are volunteering, who are participating. And we hope that it'll be a voice for people who cycle and be a voice for a whole lot of different types of people who cycle because the experience I have cycling would be very different, different to uh, a 20-year-old graduate who grew up in a very different climate and attitude towards cycling than the than what it was when I grew up. And similarly, um, a 60-year-old woman who's cycling a cargo bike will have an entirely different experience again. And we hope that our tool will act as a way to allow the stakeholders to empathize with the viewpoints and experiences that um, each of these different types of cyclists experience. Maybe with the aim that maybe they might prioritize some of the issues reported by people who are currently underrepresented in those in, uh, in, in, who cycle. Um, so maybe it would be in Dublin there's only one quarter of uh, the people who cycle are women and maybe that's not so bad compared to other cities and it's probably worse than a lot of it, definitely worse than uh, here in the Netherlands. Thierry, we've got uh, in front of us a rather wonderful bicycle. Now I was ri riding with you the other night on the, the fast highway between uh, Nijmegen and Arnhem and it was fascinating to, to see your bicycle and you were the one navigating and you had an iPad on the front of your handlebars then you look and you had a camera mm -hmm. and then you had other things and then you were telling me that you also have a third wheel which I now see today mm -hmm. so you have a measuring bike yep. so Thierry what are you measuring and what kind of sensors do you have on there? Oh many questions at the same time. Well, let me first start to say that the, the measuring bike has actually started as a, as a project to create consciousness amongst the decision makers, uh, politicians, uh, all kinds of people who deal with uh, public space, uh, infrastructure, cycling paths, uh, car roads, everything, all the people that deal with, with that. And the aim was to, to actually make the, the, the discussion about infrastructure and especially the, the comfort issues more objective because we, we saw that, that, that decision makers were saying oh, okay it's not so bad infrastructure or there's not such a big deal not such a big problem while as basically all the, the, the users uh, the, the cyclists were, were saying that there is here a problem and we started smoothly at the beginning it was not so easy to find the right uh, first of all the right uh, um, material or let's say the tools to, to measure it but we kind of created a joint venture with uh, universities which, which universities are they? Yeah, the University of Leuven uh, and the University in Brussels so the University of Leuven created the infrastructure 
or the tool, let's say, to, to measure the, the vibration comfort. And with the University of Brussels, uh, we developed a tablet application uh, with which we uh, measure all the facets or elements that influence the cyclability of, of cycle paths. So it's the width of a cycling path, actually the available fit, because you can have a bicycle path of, for example, two meters, but if there is a parking zone next to it, or there is a wall, or there is a raised sidewalk, or whatever obstacle, that all those kind of things may uh, reduce the available width of a cycling path. So next to a parking zone, it gives a kind of reduction of uh, yeah, up to 75 centimeters. So even if you have a cycling path of two meters, if you have a parking zone next to it, the available space, let's say, for cyclists, it's only 135, 135 centimeters. So that's for uh, the width. Next to that, also separation with uh, cars. Uh, is there uh, are there trees between the cycling path and and the uh, road, or bushes, or uh, stone elements, uh, lighting elements? Together with the cycling comfort, it gives kind of a yeah, global result or the cyclability of, of a cycling route or cycling path. So that's in brief what, what we measure somehow. But there, but there are much more many aspects, but that's briefly... So tell me how yeah. this information is pumped out. So you have all these measures. Yeah. Does it go onto a map like automatically or do you have to do an awful lot of manipulation of the data? Well, the data have to be processed. For that, we have a data bank. They get, go into it. There is a control uh, of the data. And then uh, we have a kind of a web application. And there we can visualize all the results. Tell me a bit more about, so I didn't see the, the you basically got a trailer on the back, a one-wheel yes. trailer. Mm -hmm. So that is measuring the comfort. So in other words, how smooth the vibration the, the, comfort, yeah. So, that's, so if you're going over cobbles, it'll give one measurement. If you're going over beautiful yeah. smooth asphalt, it will, it will give another measurement. The most, the most striking graph that we use all the time, and when you see that graph, you understand basically everything. Um, because that's a typical situation we see in Belgium. You have the car road and asphalt. Also here in, here in the Netherlands, you also see it, but uh, not so often. And then next to it, a uh, typical bicycle path, either in concrete, tiles, sometimes even uh, kind of cobblestones that mm -hmm. also exist. Mm -hmm. And we measured the road for cars and we measured the road for cyclists. Mm -hmm. And you see on the graph that uh, because it's, it's based on the standard deviation, that's a standard internationally uh, known, let's say. And for uh, the cars, the vibration is rather smoothly. Yeah. But once on the cycling path, especially on the crossings, we see a big problem with the, I don't know, the, 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 the space or the room. No, no, the space. But when it rains, the water has to go somewhere. In the gullies, gullies. The, the sewer gullies. Okay. And there we see a big peak in discomfort. Mm -hmm. You see it here. So, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's tremendous. It's really a shock every time. And uh, when we show this graph, then really th you see the eyes going o opening and, uh, and yeah. yeah, it's... it's uh, so the cars are basically getting um, lots of comfort, lots yeah. of smooth, which also the sm smoothness isn't just for comfort, the smoothness is for speed. Speed, so and, yeah, and safety uh, at the end as well. Huh? Mm -hmm. If you all the time have this kind of shock, uh, your bicycle is basically going to ruin. Uh, you have to watch out, you have to slow down, uh, start uh, again, so... Um, it's not a very comfort and, and safe situation either. So. so how do you use this measuring bike? Are you personally going around the whole of Belgium cycling 
everywhere and mapping the whole country and getting the data for the whole country or you zooming in on areas where you know you think there ought to be bike paths and then measure the data and then give it to the... the well, we used to start like that, so measure wherever we thought it was necessary, but now as we are, yeah, we, we, we created kind of the consciousness amongst the authorities, so now concretely for the province of Antwerp, we have to measure the whole cycling network, and now we are paid for that, so <laughs> we go uh, specifically uh, for their cycling network in that region. So... Um, so entrepreneurs in other countries, yeah. for instance, yeah. could look at what you're doing. Yes. And there's a, there's a similar one in uh, the Netherlands, I believe, in the, in the Fietsebond in the be, Netherlands. It used to be. For the, because also every country has its own local context. Mm. We focus more on the vibration comfort because for us, we think as cyclists, mm. as a user, also lobby group or a cyclist, you know, we, we find it the most determining or the most important issue because all the rest is better, let's say. If we see, we, we, we measured like, uh, we audited like uh, 4,000 kilometers. There, in our statistics, show that that uh, basically 80-90% are the cycle of the cycling paths are wide enough. They are also rather well separated. But there is a huge problem of the vibration comfort uh, of the f 4,000 kilometers. The, the average uh, score is under uh, four over ten, while as the wide, uh, the width and the separation is up to seven, seven and a half, so that's rather fine, but the vibration comfort is a, still an issue. The, the, the measuring bike that you have here, yeah. motorists have this for cars, so you, you, you see it like the third wheel mm -hmm. on these measuring vehicles, so this is something that uh, motorists don't obviously know that this, this is happening, mm -hmm. but is absolutely happening. It's absolutely happening. And then you're doing it for bikes. Yes. That's pretty much a good uh, example, yeah. So when, when did this start? So tell me the, the, kind of the age of the project. How long have you been doing this, basically? Yeah, so uh, we started basically uh, 10 years ago in 2007. At the beginning, we were only able to measure like uh, more than one kilometer, 1,250 meters. Um, also the, the, the accelerator, so the, the, the sensor that, that really uh, measures the, the, the vibration discomfort has also evolved. We are now much, uh, it's much easier also to process the data because at the beginning it was with Excel sheets and it was uh, a lot of work afterwards. So now it's really automatized and because also developed their own uh, tablet application. So that tablet, that uh, when we were going along the, mm -hmm. the cycle highway between the two cities mm -hmm. and you were using an app and you're telling us where to go, that was, that was your app you were using? At that moment, not particularly. It was just I'm just was just looking on the map okay. at the GPS location, and there I could see where we are going. But uh, I could I could uh, at the same time I could uh, also measure the infrastructure uh, of the path that we of the cycling highway that we took at that moment. So that could be possible, but I didn't do that at that moment. But so it could be possible. But at the end, I mean, here in the Netherlands, it's not so necessary or surprising because you already can can see or know on a cycling highway here in the Netherlands, it's a minimum four meters. Uh, you can drive with two or even with three next to each other. It's completely separated from car traffic and it's asphalt. So knowing that, you already basically know that you will have the best score that's possible. While as we in Belgium, we still have to deal with even cycling highways in concrete, even uh, not enough separated cycling lanes, even not wide enough because there is a parking zone next to it. So it's a completely different context. And um, the problem with because I know that happens all over Europe, kind of uh, vibration measurements, but uh, there is a huge difference in, to say, to have comparable results. 
because if one person measures it, the other person might have a completely other result for the same path. And uh, we did this uh, for it, and we found out that actually the best is to have this, this third wheel at the back. Also, uh, you will see that uh, there are two bags actually filled with sand to keep the balance, because also when you're on a curve, it has a discomfort, it has an effect on, on the discomfort. It'll bounce up too yeah, yeah, high, yeah, yeah, it won't yeah, yeah. measure. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. So uh, we found out that this is the most accurate way of measuring specifically uh, vibration comfort. Okay. That's what we found out after yeah, many tests. So these, this started as a university project? Yeah. And then has been, it, does it pay for itself now? So people who are at the municipalities who are paying for this, yeah. this is a project that is paying for itself. We are, let's say, break even. Okay. Because there is the measuring as such is not that much work, but it's the processing afterwards and also uh, giving the right advices for that. That is what actually uh, yeah, demands. It's time confusing, compu um, consuming, let's say. So, uh, yeah. The province of Antwerp, very specifically, started 10 years ago to think and also to project, uh, to make projects to, to, to create a cycling highway between two big uh, cities. Let's say there was already a consciousness about the width and about the separation, but completely not about the vibration comfort. They are still on a cycling highway still. On this particular example, there are still some parts in concrete tiles and in concrete. Since that we started to do the measurements, after two, three years, they do now all their projects only in asphalt. So that's a very fulfilling, uh, satisfying uh, outcome of, of, our, uh, of our work, let's say. So, uh, yeah, totally. Yeah? So you've given this, this, this presentation here yeah. at VeloCity. Mm -hmm. What are you hoping to get out of your presentation here? What, what are, you, are you trying to get other people in other countries to do this sort of thing? What, 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 what's your game plan here? Well, first of all, it's just to show how we work. Also, I very yeah, explicitly stated that it's, every country has its own con uh, context. Uh, again, for us, the most important thing was the, the vibration comfort. Other con countries might be something else. Uh, perhaps they still have to fight for the cycling paths, and if they have already them, they might be already happy. Here in the Netherlands, for example, there is another debate. Uh, for example, the cycling professor this morning was actually saying <laughs> that, that the cycling paths are actually yeah, how to say it? Uh, they are creating such a regulated environment that if you have so, too many cyclists, that the cyclists are actually not, not following the rules anymore. And, and then you, you kind of create an outlaw environment. Mm. Mm. But what do you do then? Do you adapt the public space to that new context, new situation? Or do you enforce the behavior of those cyclists to really follow the cycling paths and follow all the, those traffic lights? That's an interesting question, actually, to think more about. So, Is there any English language information where people can go on a website and, and find out well, about... Obviously, I can see your presentations in English, but... My presentation uh, for the rest is... A website as such, no, we, we don't have that. Um, no, for the moment, okay. no. If I put this on a website, there's then information on a website about what you're doing. You can do that. Okay. We would be grateful for that. You, you can even put the presentation on that, uh, at least a, a part. Uh, what about Belgium? I mean, that's obviously in English. What about yeah. can, if, if Belgian cyclists, they can see this project on, online somewhere? 
Yes, part, partly yes. <laughs> so give us the website where they can, is it the Feeter Bond website? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, so what's, what's the Features Bond website? The website where they can find more information yeah. is featuresbond.be slash midfits. That's Midfits. So I will give you perhaps the card. <laughs> uh, if I have it here now. And I'll, while you're getting that, I'll just spell that. So it's F-I-E-T-S-E-R-S-B-O-N-D dot B-E. Slash. Slash. And then uh, measuring bike is in Dutch. Midfits. M-E-E-T-F-I-E-T-S. That was Thierry Jimenez of Belgium's Fietsersbond. Now, Thierry mentioned a presentation from the cycling professor. And that professor is Marco T. Bromostrut. I've probably pronounced his name wrong there. Sorry, Marco. Uh, but he's the academic in charge of the Urban Cycling Institute at the University of Amsterdam. On Twitter, Marco is Fietsprofessor, which in English translates as bicycle professor. Marco gave one of the keynotes at Velo City, and I caught up with him just before he gave it. Um, we're going to talk about how the Dutch used the car-based narrative of mobility planning to make room for cycling, and that it's so successful now that we uh, achieve levels of cycling that can actually challenge the car-based narrative. Basically, so many people are on bikes, but there's not, not so much room for them anymore because they were bike-shaped facilities which are quite narrow. They're quite narrow and they're not so much based on human logic but on machine logic. So our uh, bicycle infrastructure is actually, if you look at it, built uh, uh, on premises that, they, that cyclists behave like smaller cars. They're rational, the average matters, speed matters. Um, uh, safety matters, and of course all of that matters, uh, but the underlying logic of how cyclists can behave uh, is not taken into account on these facilities. And if you do, uh, as Amsterdam is now doing, you create uh, incredibly new opportunities to cater for even more cycling. And the, the, the cycle motorways, the, the highways, the, the fast highways yes. that we have between Arnhem and Nijmegen here, are, are they of interest to Dutch people? Are they, do they people want to cycle those kind of distances? Yeah, what we, again, so it, it, there's no average Dutch person cycling. So it's the diversity that counts. That's already human logic and not the machine logic. The machine land, uh, the average counts, and human uh, land, the diversity counts. So if you have diversity of people, you also need a diversity of environments to cycle in. And uh, bicycle highways, although I do not prefer the, the word, they add sort of a high quality, high comfort uh, uh, environment. And if you have no scooters on them, you can actually use them for people that have not so much skills yet, or not so much skills anymore. Um, but they will, not, they, they will definitely not be the only environment. So we also need environments that are much more challenging for other people. Um, and again, I think once you take the human uh, perspective as, uh, as, uh, as a starting point, um, you will start seeing that. You will st start seeing the diversity, how people behave in space, how they feel, uh, how they use all their um, senses to interact. So uh, cyclists, they swarm together, is what you see in Amsterdam. People like cycling en masse. Yeah, the, sort of the how of that is, uh, is uh, I think, uh, I, I, I uh, learned a thing of t or two uh, by looking at the swarm, how birds interact, and birds basically are continuously uh, relocating in a swarm based on uh, their own preferences of being in the swarm, but by relocating in the swarm, they actually change the shape of it, and that's the, the swarming that we see. 
So if you apply that logic to cycling, you can start seeing how cyclists, uh, um, their behavior, especially on intersections, is based on preferences that they have also in relation to what others do. But by, by then acting based on these preferences, they change the conditions. And that's, that's the swarming that you can see. I got more on this swarming in Amsterdam and other aspects of Amsterdam cycling culture from the University of Amsterdam's Meredith Glazer. In, in Amsterdam, there's been a few um, recent projects where the city is, is creating more space for cycling. And by doing that, they're really disrupting kind of the norm around cycling. So for example, uh, on Alexanderplein, in the city center, pretty major intersection, they um, decided to turn the traffic lights off for a period of two weeks as an experiment. Um, in order to see how that would impact bicycle traffic flow. And this is an intersection with three tram lines, um, over 5,000 cars a day, you know, a lot of cyclists, pedestrians. And um, so not only did they get the, the, the stakeholders involved and accept this and say yes to it very nervously, but they said yes to it, and also the politicians, um, but they they then did it, and it and it quote unquote worked so well that the lights uh, remained off, and then most recently the the traffic light infrastructure was completely removed, and they're going to redesign the the, the intersection, and um, I think this this is a great example of you know that they're still trying to to push forward. They're trying to increase levels, try to get more people to cycle. Um, but also that it's not without a strategy. Because at the same time they were doing that intersection, intervention, the adjacent street was traffic calmed. And, uh, a, and a, a parallel street was actually traffic prioritized. So the, they give a the little incentive to the car drivers to go on that other street. Um, and cycling on, on this route increased by 37% just from this traffic calming and Fietstraat. So creating the Fietstraat, you know, on this route. So Amsterdam thought about it and planned it, yes. which is maybe what it hasn't done in the past. It's been organic, the growth has been organic, whereas this is, they're, they're thinking about it a bit more. Maybe thinking about it more strategically because that's what it, that's what they need to do. They, it, in, I mean, there's already, in certain parts of Amsterdam, 68% of all trips by bike. So that's a lot of bicycles, that's a lot of people on bikes on the street. So how to increase that number? You can't just, it's not just a, it's a, not a, there's not a single answer to that. It's multiple different pieces that fit into a puzzle. And um, um, so yeah, that it's not without a strategy. And I think that's one of the most important take home lessons for, I think any, any you know, advocate or professional um, politician or, or planner, or designer, engineer as well, that you know, it's, it's not something that can happen overnight and it's not something that can happen without a vision. Um, and now you see people riding four or five abreast, you know, on this street, which is, which is fantastic. It's comfortable, it's big and wide, it's um, also very sociable when you see a lot of people socially cycling, talking to each other. And it's a route that goes, you know, all around the city, so you can really get into flow. 
and I think that's something that um, the city is really trying to understand in a, in a more profound way, this, this idea of how do you get people, how do you get this, these swarms of cyclists into more flow? Marco will talk about that on Thursday. Marco has talked about that already. Oh, yeah, okay. I've been talking to Marco, and he's very much into flow and swarms, and, and this yeah, is just beautiful. And the Hungarian, yeah, the Hungarian researcher. Uh-huh. Well, we don't have that swarms or flows. Yeah. Well, in London, actually, we do. In London, there are those, those are a lot of cyclists. But a swarm is it different than being in flow, right? The swarm is, is what I think helps produce flow, but flow can happen on many different levels. There's, there's the social flow, you know, like you're really, you're in it with other people around you. The other people are, are definitely augmenting this this flow experience, but it's also a mind state that it's this. It's it's at a point where my theory. I, this is not Marco's theory, but there's a point I think at which physio, physiologically your body is either at a specific you know your heart's beating at a specific rate um, or getting used to this new elevated rate. Uh, you're starting to think more creatively, you're starting to think about other things, um, and at the same time, you're noticing all these intangible uh, and tangible elements of your environment. So you're noticing the slight pedal increase of someone else, or you're noticing that someone's making a, uh, a head turn that's indicating that they're going to turn left, and you're, you're just taking it all in, and at the same time, thinking and, and possibly subconsciously processing information because um, you're not even aware that you're taking all these mm. all these elements in. All the cues. All the cues. Yeah. I mean, there's so many times where at that point I say, that's the question I need to include in my dissertation. You know, these moments of, of um, like elation or, or something. So I think deeply understanding this I can can really, um, yeah, really say something, yeah. So how much of a, a native have you become? And then when you go back to North America, how much do you miss the, what's, what, what you've you now become very used to? I have to be careful what I say here because of course I have loved ones and friends and family in, in America and, do, and want to honor their, their home, right? And my former home as well. Um, but at the, at the same time, I, I am aware that every time I go home, back to Northern California, the Bay Area, I see, I experience and see more traffic, um, more cars, just so much, I'm just shocked. I continually am shocked at how much time people spend in the car. And that's like the, the reverse culture shock thing, right? Um, but then, most interestingly, I also hear friends and family rationalizing this this time spent in the car. They like listening to podcasts. That's exactly. the rationalization I right? get. Yeah, there, it's a rationalization of it's okay because I can spend this time in a quality manner. Yeah. Of course, definitional problems arise when you think about what quality is but I mean if that works for them that's also that's also great because our, our mobility you know our sense of time and mobility with mobility is uh, very convoluted <laughs> um, so I, I don't say that as a good thing or a bad thing it's just it's an observation that I that I notice and um, I think we have to be careful about 
understand this on a deeper level because this is where you know, mobility transitions and transitioning to a low carbon economy and you know all these jargon about more sustainable forms of transportation at the root is behavior change and norm activation or rather norm deactivation and reactivation of new norms and if we want to start that process we really have to understand what's going on in people's minds and how can we translate that into some sort of starting stages of change because that's really difficult and with these study tours that I that I've led a lot I think it's very difficult to imagine different forms of mobility if it's not something you use now and if it's if it's not immediately around you and you don't see it and that's I think that's the case in most you know most cities in the states that they don't see they don't identify with this with other forms of mobility than the one that they're taking now isn't there some hard engineering involved here as well though in that the reason people are driving lots in America is because you've got to drive lots in America if you want to get places or take the airplane or because there are no not many trains whereas you get on a you fly into a European airport you get off and you can go anywhere in Europe on a, on a train so there's no real behavior change needed there in that all the infrastructure is there for you to go and do this whereas in North America it's but how are you going to change behavior if you physically can't actually exactly. get on a train and go somewhere? Yeah, I mean, you've, you've brought up so many elements, right? You've brought up accessibility to different types of transportation modes. Um, you've brought up the spatial characteristics of different urban environments, which plays a huge factor, right? I mean, if, if you're, like what Kevin Kreisig was talking about today, right? If you're living in an, in an area that the distances are so far from destinations that you want, that are meaningful to you, then that's going to be a challenge, more challenging environment to ride a bike or, or whatever. And then you have that extra hurdle of the behavior modification or even awareness or even buying a bike or, you know, other gender norms. I mean, there's so many other aspects, right? Where can people find what you do on the internet? Is there somewhere where they can go, oh, I can find Meredith's stuff here? Or your Twitter name? Or where, where can people find you, Meredith? For the next four years, I am at the Urban Cycling Institute um, and studying policy learning and how, how people, uh, what people are learning when they come to the Netherlands to learn about cycling, how they learn, what they learn, and then what do they do when they go home? Um, and Yesterday, um, the academic conference here, Susan Handy out of Davis talked about how policy process is something that is really lacking right now in transportation. And that is essentially what I, I, I want to uncover is what are these policy processes uh, and innovations? Um, where are they originating? Where are they learning? Uh, yeah, where are they originating and how are people learning about them? And then what are they doing when they go back to their their own city, what impact do they have? So give us the website address then for, for this. www.urbancyclinginstitute.com Meredith was the person who came up with the summer school uh, at the Urban Cycling Institute, which is a program for master's students. And one of the things that uh, happens on that program is you go on quite a few infrastructure tours of Amsterdam. And on Velo City, that's exactly what we did. We had an afternoon and early evening in Amsterdam, 
and you could go on a, a number of tours which was led by uh, guides and I went on a tour led by Cornelia Dinker. Cornelia, can you tell me a bit about your masters? I know it's a few years ago now, but you were showing us pictures of your masters when we started this, this tour of Amsterdam. So just tell us a little bit about the, the research you did back when. So uh, a couple of years ago, I did my masters in urban and regional planning at the University of Amsterdam. And uh, I wasn't initially planning on doing uh, an urban and regional planning master's, but after I moved to Amsterdam, uh, I realized that uh, all these questions about sustainability that I was interested in around how do we get, uh, how do we move people around? How do we get uh, waste away from people? How do we get resources to people? How much energy do we consume per capita? Uh, I realized that all these things are impacted by how we build our cities and when you build in a compact way all these uh, urban flows work in a very efficient way and when you build in a sprawling way then uh, it takes a lot of energy to, to, um, to get water to people, to take waste away from people, all these kinds of uh, urban flows. So that's the reason why I did my, my uh, that's why I decided to do a master's in urban and regional planning even though my background was actually in engineering. Uh, so that was a shift and uh, I was very interested again in this question of urban metabolisms and flows, not necessarily just cycling, uh, but uh, that was still in a way the most fascinating part to me about um, why Amsterdam was so vibrant and so livable. So um, I had come across some uh, photographs that showed a much more car-centric version of Amsterdam in the 50s and 60s and 70s and I was interested in exploring how this shift happened uh, to a more car, uh, to a more uh, bike-friendly city. Uh, because so many uh, people who come here, including myself, there's this initial expectation that Amsterdam has always been bike-friendly. So when I discovered that wasn't the case, then I wanted to understand uh, what was this period when the city was dominated by cars and how did Amsterdam move, move beyond that period. So uh, I uh, decided to look at this evolution and uh, I also went a little bit further back to look at how Amsterdam moved, uh, how it embraced to be a car-centric city. So I looked at three periods. So the pre-car era, uh, when the city was really a city for people actually, um, and, and also for bikes uh, starting in the 1900s. And then this transition after the Second World War, when Amsterdam, like many other cities around the Netherlands and around Europe and all over the world, embraced a car-centric vision of modernity, uh, and it and it tried to uh, retrofit the city to fit the car. And uh, this transformation that's happened uh, in the last um, yeah, 20, 30 years to to reclaim the city back for people and bikes. Uh, and I did a visual analysis, so I, I looked at photos of the same streets at these three periods in time. Uh, and I looked at how the streets were being used. Um, and, uh, and I looked uh, at, at how these streets were being used and also what were the dominant ways of thinking about the city uh, at these periods in time. So uh, I looked, for example, at the way uh, in the 50s and 60s the city was being um, managed or thought of as one big machine um, and you had to get people from the outskirts into the inner city for work and then back out again uh, so you're trying it's this very technocratic way of trying to 
to control all the levers and make this big machine work. Uh, and, um, and that's very different from uh, the more decentralized, more organic way of thinking about the city today. Uh, and you see, for example, a shift um, in the late 70s and in the 80s where the city was, was divided into smaller districts and the districts could, um, uh, could think and implement speed calming measures, for example. And that's something that you couldn't do when you were uh, looking at the city as one entity uh, because you had a big conflict between these people who wanted to drive from the outskirts into the city center so then the streets were places to pass through. And when you decentralize that power and these districts could speed calm, then neighbors and neighborhoods could say, okay, we want our, um, we want our streets to be places to be. Uh, and so that, that made a, that that's one example of, of a factor that played into this transition, this transformation. And we are still seeing this today because where you've been showing us today with, with the Western Docklands is this very high density living, but almost car free in that the cars are pushed to, to one side so people can get their cars if they have to but most of the time they're living a, a people centric lifestyle with with virtually no cars that we saw so you took us to the to this area yes so this is a the thinking that is going to continue on in amsterdam yes i think so i think so so the eastern docklands is uh, um uh, a very successful waterfront redevelopment project uh, that started in the 90s and uh, in the 70s and in the 80s, Amsterdam, like many other cities, had made a lot of, let's say, urban planning mistakes, building in a modernist way. And um, by the late 80s, that started to change. And in the 90s, uh, we, we see these very successful approaches. Um, and it was, it was really also very much about attracting people back to the city. So in the 60s and in the 70s, actually, people were being pushed to these new cities uh, that were being built, and the idea was that the city would be retrofitted as for for uh, for the economy, for places to work, but not places to live. So this idea of separation was really dominant, and um, the city suffered a lot from that as the population decreased, as people with money uh, left the city, and attracting these people back to the city was not easy. Um, the these new developments had to somehow. Um, lure them in and promise them things like parking spaces and private entrances and uh, private gardens um, which uh, which were very cleverly designed or thought about um, and actually what i think is really so interesting about these uh, these areas in the eastern docklands is the way uh, there was actually still quite a bit of parking built in because it was the only way to attract people back to the city but now uh, the these people living there in these areas don't have to use their car very much. They can actually use their bike for most of the trips. They're only two or three kilometers away from uh, the central station in the inner city. And they still might have a car, but they use it maybe to go out of the city on weekends. Um, so uh, it's been, yeah, it's been extremely successful. You're not from Amsterdam. You're not even from the Netherlands. So whereabouts are you from? So I was born in Romania. I grew up in Canada, uh, in Calgary, which is uh, one of the most car-centric cities in Canada. Uh, and I actually learned to drive a car before I learned to ride a bicycle. And uh, after studying um, chemical engineering and working in oil and gas for a little while, I was actually interested in uh, sustainability, which is why I moved to Freiburg uh, in oh. Germany uh, and worked with the environmental think tank uh, in Vauban. 
And actually Vauban, uh, very few people know this, but it's inspired by the first eco-district in Amsterdam, which is, by the way, just across the street here, uh, from the 1990s. Uh, it's a lot less famous than Vauban, but um, it's a really great example of how to build an eco-district uh, by the future residents, actually. The future residents got organized and transformed this uh, former, the terrain that was used by the uh, water company previously. Um, so, uh, living in Freiburg was very interesting and inspiring in many ways, uh, but I had the opportunity to come to Amsterdam uh, for a date, actually. And, uh, yeah, sometimes I say that I came for a date but fell in love uh, with the city. Uh, and then had the opportunity to, to move here. Um, about a year later, uh, I moved to Vancouver with my boyfriend. He's uh, from California originally, so we thought, okay, let's just go back to North America. We don't have to learn Dutch, which is a difficult language. I could work as an engineer and so on. And also, by the way, moved to the best city in the world, uh, according to The Economist, which is usually right. Uh, but when we got to Vancouver, we realized it was a mistake leaving Amsterdam. So uh, during the time there, I, I um, uh, did some really interesting work. I got involved also with the local cycling communities and had, let's say, a very short uh, term as an activist. And it was very difficult. And I actually thought uh, by that point, we had already decided we were going to move back. And I also thought, um, okay, I think maybe, I mean, obviously you can have much more impact uh, living in a, in a place like Vancouver where there's still a lot of work to be done uh, but I thought for myself uh, I would try to have some influence actually from the Netherlands um, and yeah so now I work with groups that come from uh, Canada and North America but also uh, cities in Europe and everywhere else in the world who come here to learn about um, sustainable urban development so cycling and Mobility and sustainable mobility and uh, land use are key topics, um, but uh, also, let's say, broader topics around water management, waste management, um, things like social housing, uh, the transformation of polluted areas. So the, the tour that we had with you today, which you very expertly guide us around, the seven wonders, or some, at least it was a truncated tour. So some of the wonders of Amsterdam is something that people can, can go on a website and book you and, and get shown what we've been shown yeah, today. Yeah, certainly, certainly. I do usually actually during this time of year, uh, two to three, up to four tours a week. So um, it's a lot of uh, groups of students that I was started out working with initially. Uh, and uh, in the meanwhile, since, since in the last couple of years, it's also a lot of groups of uh, civil servants and uh, private sector groups as well, so consultants. And, and politicians and planners That's from other right. countries right. who want to, in that comments say, go Dutch. Yeah, who want, to, um, who want to learn from best practices. Uh, so it's really about knowledge sharing. And uh, I think uh, there's a lot to be learned from Amsterdam. One of the things that I found uh, when I moved here, and this is the reason why I started Sustainable Amsterdam, is because I felt like some of these other cities I had lived in, uh, like Freiburg, for example, but also in Vancouver, there's a lot of communications about everything that they do to be so sustainable. And uh, I felt like Amsterdam did a lot, but didn't talk so much about it. And, um, and that was uh, my attempt to kind of share some of the things that I saw uh, that I thought should be transferred and adopted elsewhere. And where can people find you on the, on the, the World Wide Web? Yes, uh, uh, sustainableamsterdam.com. <laughs>
Feeling like you should move to Amsterdam or the Netherlands? Yeah, me too. However, it is time for an ad break, so we will cut across to David. Hey, Carlton, thanks so much. And it's it's always my pleasure to talk about our advertiser. This is a long-time loyal advertiser. We're glad to have them back again, of course, in 2017. You all know who I'm talking about. It's Jensen USA at jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. I've been telling you for years now, years, that Jensen is the place where you can get a great selection of every kind of product that you need for your cycling lifestyle at amazing prices. And what really sets them apart, because of course there's lots of online retailers out there, but what really sets them apart is their unbelievable support. When you call and you've got a question about something, you'll end up talking to one of their gear advisors. And these are cyclists. I've been there. I've seen it. These folks... This is something we'll talk about in today's show, but these are folks who who ride their bikes to and from work. These are folks who ride at lunch, who go out on group rides after work because they just enjoy cycling so much. Uh, and, and so you know that when you call, you'll be talking to somebody who has knowledge of the products that you're calling about. Now, talking about great deals, it is time for Jensen USA's annual bike sale, their 2017 annual bike sale. If if you're looking for a new bike, whether it's a mountain bike, a road bike, a gravel bike, a fat bike, what are you looking for? Because now it's spring and the sun is shining and the birds are chirping and it's time to get back out on your bike. Check out Jensen USA's annual bike sale and you will not be disappointed. They always have great deals on complete bikes. I mean, I'll just give you an example. I'm looking at their website, a 2016 Orbea Occam TR M30, normally $3,999, now just $2,699. What are you waiting for? It's a great bike from a great brand at a great price. Go ahead and check them out. Jensen USA, they are the place where you will find everything you need for your cycling lifestyle. It's jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. We thank them so much for their support, and we thank you for supporting Jensen USA. All right, Carlton, let's get back to the show. Thanks, David. And yes, we are back. And I am going to wrap up uh, this episode of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast by going across to... uh, a lunchtime chat I had with Randy Newfeld of the SRAM Cycling Fund. Uh, what exactly is a SRAM person doing at uh, Velo City? And I've seen you at previous Velo Cities as well. So, what exactly are you doing at this one and what have you done at previous ones, which I'm guessing is, is roughly the same? So, I spend a lot of time explaining to the advocacy side and the industry side what I do, and it's all about growing cycling. That's my job. It's to work with the rest of the bicycle industry and all our partners and agencies and advocacy organizations and NGOs to to grow cycling. So it's different than marketing. A lot of companies have a marketing person who's about promoting their brand and their products. That's not my job. My job is to work with our customers, which are other bike companies, our competitors, and grow cycling. So what have you found here? I mean, is, are you mainly networking with people here or are you going into the sessions? What, 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 do, you, what do you try and do when you're here? I'm, I'm doing a, lot, a bit of uh, all of that. I presented at a session on growing advocacy capacity. I talked about how to fundraise, how to ask money um, from business. 
Um, I'm doing a lot of networking. That's, I would say, my main purpose. But also looking at the sessions. There was uh, a great session about speed pedal X yesterday, and it's really important for the industry to know about what the policy environment is for speed pedal X and how it's developing. Yeah, because in Europe, there are some countries that are pretty much banning them and the other countries that are trying to encourage them. Where's, where's America in that kind of stream? So the bicycle industry in the U.S. is working really hard to create a, a coherent, consistent policy environment. Because of our constitution, the use on roads and streets is regulated at the state level. So whatever you do, you have to do it 50 times. So right now we are... We've created a model e-bike policy that includes three classes of e-bikes, um, including Speed Pedal X, and we've passed that in about eight states now. There's another 20 states that have some sort of functional e-bike policy, and then there's the rest that are still trying to shoehorn e-bikes into old moped policy. So that, that's, that's the overall environment. Um, speed pedal X, for the most part, are, are um, they don't require insurance, they don't require licensing. Um, in, in, in most states, they require a helmet, where a, a regular e-bike would not require a helmet. Um, and there's, there's usually an age restriction as well. So for the most part, we've, we've tried to keep it as a little bit more serious than an e-bike um, and, and tr trying to make an e-bike a bicycle and a speed pedelec is a little more serious, but not as onerous as moped law. And have you been riding around while you were here? Have you been going on the, like, the, the cycle superhighways they've got between Arnhem and Nijmegen? What have you been doing on, uh, on the riding front? I, uh, I got to ride the F325 yesterday from Nijmegen to Arnhem, and um, it, was, it was a very nice ride. It was interesting um, to me. It wasn't that well used. Um, you know, when you ride in Amsterdam, when you ride within the city of Nijmegen, you see how many cyclists there are, and there was only one e-bike I saw during my, my ride, which, which in many ways is the purpose. A lot of the scooters, which I see as the big problem of, of Dutch cycling infrastructure right now, and um, a lot of road bikes. So I think whatever you think of these bicycle superhighways, the whole idea that people can now do a road bike commute and uh, turn their commute time into recreational time. It's a, it's a really splendid outcome. And what's your background at both SRAM and in the industry? So tell me a little bit, little bit about you. So I'm director of the SRAM Cycling Fund, which means SRAM gives me some money to give away. Um, we focus on advocacy for infrastructure with a double, a double leverage. Um, we're trying to get other money from other companies um, to to make our funds go further but most of all we're going after the big money which is public investment so we're funding advocacy um, to go after public investment in infrastructure so trying to turn millions into billions basically um, I've been with SRAM nine years now um, for 21 years before that I ran the bicycle pedestrian and transit organization in Chicago I'm still based in Chicago, still active there. Um, 
I also do a lot of consulting, advising to various organizations. We have primary partners. In North America, it's IMBA and um, People for Bikes. In Europe, it is um, the European Cycling Federation and IMBA Europe. And People for Bikes is, is getting an Australian offshoot. So is People for Bikes kind of like going global? So it's not clear to me that all the decisions have been in place. There's a strong possibility that there'll be a People for Bikes Australia. It's, it's a brand, People for Bikes, um, and it's only been in the U.S. now, and it's, it's, been, a, it's been a brand that has um, been really good at communications and messaging around bicycling, the, the names kind of says it all. It's not about cycling or cyclists, but people who ride bikes, the mainstreaming of cycling. And I think the, the, the other thing is very simple ways to engage beyond paying money to join an advocacy organization you know, in cycling, trying to, trying to get a, a big list of names and then trying to organize the other sectors that traditionally have not been organized. Um, there was a time when cycling advocacy was the the uh, the advocates getting together to storm the Bastille um, and you know to go to city hall and try to influence policy. Now there are advocates in city hall in many places. There are advocates in agencies. There are advocates in, as engineers. There's advocates in the business community. And we need a model that can really um, bring that whole set of resources and that whole constellation of stakeholders into advocacy. That's the idea, I think, uh, taking a brand like People for Bikes and making it, uh, having it in more countries, there's not really a plan for that, there's not really a scheme for that, but I think that there is some openness to extending that model to other places where, where it might, might work. The key ingredient though, which Australia has, is that, that the base of support coming from the cycling industry. So you've got some money and some resources to start out with. You're not scrapping for finances at the very beginning. And you're talking about millions into billions. Mm -hmm. Is that global or is that a US thing? So what are you? So, so I was thinking primarily in terms of Europe and North America, which is the domain of the SRAM Cycling Fund. It's, it's, the, it's the work we do where our primary markets are. So we support ECF. Um, other companies support ECF. We've helped, we've helped organize the Cycling Industry Club. That money is then used to lobby for European money, the leadership program so that that there are good national cycling strategies in as many nations as possible. Those policies and strategies yield funding, which yields infrastructure, which is where the billions are. So it, it, works, it works in many countries. As you know, there's a lot of variety in, in Europe. Um, there's cycling heaven and cycling hell. It just depends upon what, what country you're in. And, and, and the strategy is very different. However, the European funds, for instance, it's, 
very important that the more challenging cycling countries have good cycling strategies and good cycling advocacy because the European funds are dependent on many countries wanting to see funds spent in that area. If it's just a few, it's not going to work. We're in the Netherlands, mm -hmm. which is one of those countries where it's bicycle heaven and not bicycle hell. So do you think the advocates and the policymakers and the planners who are here in, in Nijmegen and Arnhem, do you think they're going to go away with the concept of, we can do this, or is it going to be a case of like, the Netherlands is so far ahead of everywhere else, it's almost unachievable. So is this going to inspire people to do stuff, or do you think it almost might make people quite depressed in that, wow, we, we can't do this. So working with People for Bikes, we've, over the last 10 years, taken a string of delegations of elected officials, policymakers, business people, advocates to the Netherlands, um, also to Denmark. And part of it is to see what the end looks like and to determine whether the end goal is worth it, whether the ROI is there. And when we bring those groups here, they have conversations here. Can we do this back on Milwaukee Avenue? Can we, would this work in our context? So the translation starts pretty quickly. So I think it is overwhelming in terms of how much has been done, but I think that many pieces are translatable. The other thing that's really fascinating is whether or not there's a possibility that we can do it quicker than they've done it. And there's a really interesting situation right now where we've had over the last five years the protected bike lane movement in the United States going from just a handful of facilities to over 400. And the Germans, who are right next door to the Netherlands, have now looked at the U.S. interpretation of Dutch infrastructure and become very interested in that interpretation and how it's, it's played out. Um, because it's, it's been translated slightly and there's some, there's some it's, there, it's really a modeling of how it can be implemented. And one of the things they're really fascinated by is the speed of implementation. And, uh, and so, so earlier this year, we set up an, uh, an official ex exchange um, with all the pomp and circumstance and, 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 and uh, signed uh, agreements between North Rhine-Westphalia and Germany and and um, and Chicago, and North Rhine-Westphalia is very interested in protected bike lanes, um, quick build demonstrations and models. We're very interested in in cycle superhighway development in Germany. Both of us are doing things that the Dutch uh, initiated and the Dutch showed the world how to do. So in many respects, the Dutch of this is a, a, a common complaint yeah. uh, from the Dutch, from the Dutch advocates, is that Dutch people and Dutch planners assume that 
they're the bicycle nation. They're, they're the bicycle kingdom, so they're the leaders of this. Whereas in fact, there are, as you've just said there, there are other programs that are actually trying to out-Dutch the Dutch. I don't, I don't know that it's so much out-Dutching the Dutch as it is being, what the Dutch can have expertise in is, is making bicycle infrastructure happen in a nation that is not a bicycling nation right now. Um, they can't have expertise in how to do it quickly. Um, so I think that there are sort of experts in, experts in really translating Dutch, Dutch innovation that the Dutch themselves can't be the translators because they don't know the political um, and engineering context of the countries that are interested in, in some change. And the change is always different than the model. Thanks to Randy and to Cornelia and Fiona and Marco and Meredith and Connor and Thierry. And thank you for listening. You can get show notes and more at the-spokesmen.com. The next show will be in a couple of weeks and we'll be back to our usual format. And that's a Skype chat with our regular crew. In the meantime, get out there and ride. I promised you, didn't I? Bicycle by Queen, like you've never heard it before. And that was played at the Velo City opening by Gelder's Orchestra.